Howdy, listeners, and welcome once again to 1962, exactly 60 years ago, specifically August, the summer of 1962. Yeah, the Beatles were getting ready to record their first EMI single. Uh, Cynthia gets pregnant, she and John wed, and what else happened? Um... Oh, yeah, they switched drummers. Ah. Ah, no big news then, eh? Just another month. Blah, blah, blah. How did they keep their heads together through all this emotional rock and roller coastering? Oh, well, it was clearly stressful for them. Um, We have some new worlds to discover in this episode. Uh, And we'll get some guest input from Eric King Mixer Howell, uh, historian Steve Bradley, uh, Beatles 60 Twitterer Lauren Grant, and archivist of all trivia, that's Beatles plus Liverpool, Scouse blogger Mark Ashworth. And before we forget, please, listener, follow this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platform, whatever you use. Um, We used to say subscribe to podcasts, didn't we? Now I guess what the word is follow. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, if you do, you'll have every new episode loaded right there in your device as soon as we put it out. It's like magic. I'm Andrew Martin Adamson. Call me Andy. And I'm Larry, also known as Lawrence, also known as Rents. <laughs> so the Fab Four, <laughs> the Fab Four really are uh, entertaining some new roles, and finally have their classic John Paul George Ringo lineup. Woohoo! Oh yes. And maybe it suddenly felt like a whole new world, and you might think that they knew what the second half of 1962 would bring. But of course they didn't. This must have been a very nervy, stressful time for Brian, certainly for Cynthia, certainly for Pete and Ringo. Uh, You know how it is. Change is inevitable in life. And even good changes can cause stress. And for, for Pete, it wasn't a very good change at all. Hmm. So where are we going? Um, where are we going? Where the fuck are we going? <laughs> we want to emphasize right here and now about the summer of 1962 that the group had high hopes about recording their first singles, but there were doubts, too. Would they be forced to release How Do You Do What You Do To Me? I wish I knew. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Would their new drummer be allowed to play uh, on this single in the when they get back to Abbey Road Studios? Or at the time it was called EMI Studio, this or that. Mm-hmm. 
was national fame even possible? These were open questions, and it's a big mistake, we think. If you're going to try to put yourselves in the Beatle boots at the time, it's a big mistake to say they were on the cusp of stardom. Yeah. Uh, even in the case of Pete, to say, oh, poor guy, he'd right on the cusp of stardom. He didn't know that, you know? They certainly didn't know that yet. None of them. And most of the UK had still never heard of them. Yeah. And if you really want to understand their minds, their experiences, their behaviors, their situations, then you have to imagine that you don't know either what lies ahead. Put on your summer 1962 hat. Hmm. Put on your 62 hat. That could be a song. Yeah. We'll write it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's play that Where We Going music. Yeah. things all good now with John, Paul, and George? How far ahead were they thinking in terms of how successful they were going to be? You know, how, how close did they feel like they had reached the toppermost? Well, <laughs> probably not the toppermost yet. It, it, it seems like, you know, there were ups and downs in pretty much every area. I mean, being signed and looking forward to their first single and a new drummer, these were all great. Uh, but there was some disagreement about song choice, like you said, about which drummer would be allowed to play. Um, on top of it, John was about to abruptly get married, which he didn't know two weeks earlier. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure they were thinking a whole lot about exactly how successful they would be in the future. Um, check out what Lauren Grant had to say about that. Yeah, I, I think they weren't prepared for the reaction. I think they thought it was just going to be a, yep, that's that's Pete out. We've got Ringo in, and uh, and you know that would have been that. But of course, we know today that that's not the case. But as I say, what what I find interesting mm. is the the number of myths and legends, and you know everybody has a different version of what happened and. Um, you know, who initiated the sacking? Was it the band? Was it Brian? Was it George Martin? You know, they all denied it, that it was them. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously because, you know, it, it was quite a poor thing to do. But but even at the time, you know, the the, the band themselves, they had no idea that, that they were, you know, on the edge of being, you know, the biggest thing in the world. That's it. Yeah. Yes. And, and without, you know, knowing that that was going to happen, um, they they were just changing their drummer, and and as I say, it was done so often back in the day that mm. uh, you know if if the Beatles had gone on to have a couple of hit singles and then disappear, it, you know <laughs> we certainly wouldn't be talking about it. But then you know he had been playing with them for a couple of years, and and I think you know you spend that amount of time together with uh, a group of people and. Um, you know, you're going drinking with them. You're you're playing on stage with them. You know, especially in in Hamburg, mm -hmm. you can be playing for so many hours a night. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I think Pete had built built that connection 
with them over the couple of years. And then, as I say, it, it's all about these myths, you know. Um, oh, he did, he didn't hang out with the guys after the shows. Um, and then, if you know, if you dig a bit into it, you find that that's that's untrue. I mean, you know, he and John were drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, John would stay over at Pete's house after gigs in in Liverpool. Um, you know, when when Stu Sutcliffe was was getting what in Scotland we would call a doing or a beating outside Latham Hall, it was John and Pete who came to his rescue. Mm. So you know, I, I I think Pete did have that connection, and 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 that's that's I think where where it, it is such a mystery to me, um, because it's you know you you are kicking out somebody that you've been working so closely with and spending so much time with over over that two year period, um, and and I I think I think we'll never understand what really happened. Okay, um, well, before we get to the shotgun wedding, uh, the studio tension, and finally our appreciation of Pete, Mona, and Neil, uh, I want to point out quickly that all the guest excerpts here come from our unproduced monthly live extra show for members. That's where we got that. For members. For members. For members only. Yeah. (laughs) That's where we got that Lauren bit. Yes. The full interviews are informative and give us fresh insights into this Fab Four story. And Denise A. Lapola is here again to tell you how easy it is to become a member. Andy and Larry appreciate those who listen all through the regular podcast episodes. So we have a new, very cool bonus for you, an exclusive monthly event called Beatles 60 Live. The live show is audio, not video. First weekend of every month, membership is free and audio access is free. It's all free and easy. This audio doesn't appear in the normal podcast feed, but you can access it from anywhere in the world by signing up for Beatles 60 Live. Once you sign up, you'll see how easy access is. Okay. Here's how you find the members page. There's just one simple little trick. See this episode notes. Find the Beatles60.group link. Open that in any browser. To get to the secret live page for members, just add live at the end. So it's Beatles60.group slash live. Again, Beatles60.group slash live. The first time you get there, you'll have to sign up. It takes just a couple of seconds. Just enter any name and valid email and you're there. Bob's your uncle. It's that straightforward. Got it? That's Beatles 60.group slash live. We'll email you in advance of each live so you'll know the exact time to listen, specified in most world time zones. And you'll have a convenient invitation link sent to you privately. You'll find stuff easily using the members-only navigation. Dead simple once you're in. Full live event information is all there. If you have any trouble, just contact Andy. He can give you the link privately or resend the confirmation email or whatever. 
Members who missed the live event can listen later. We'll archive each one on the Beatles 60 Live page. You can just choose a past date, hit the play button, and listen anytime. Hope you can join. I just want to add that your email address is safe with me. I'm the only one who will email you no more than once a month uh, to announce each event. And it's easy to unsubscribe. You have my word. Andy is trustworthy. Come and join our little insider community. Yes. Okay, that out of the way now. Uh, so what's coming up in our show? First, we have Cynthia John Bryan. And then what's second, Andy? Uh, EMI, The Beatles, and Ringo. And then finally, we have Appreciating Mona, Pete, and Neil. Which we do. Which we do. For John, the kind of question that occupied his mind this summer, 1962, was like where he and Cynthia and the new baby were going to live personal stuff. Um, John must have had so much on his mind, both personal and professional. Uh, it reminds us again that the Beatles really wouldn't have made it without Brian. Um, yeah. He understood the kind of support John and Cynthia would need, didn't he? Yeah, the wedding news was pretty sudden. Uh, by most accounts, Cynthia told John about her pregnancy. It must have been about after the first week of August, call it around the 7th or 8th. Mm -hmm. uh, so while most of his time had been spent thinking about writing new songs, recording them, getting Ringo um, aboard, this was a major distraction. How, how do you plan a very quick wedding? And in terms of the Beatles, how do you deal with the fact that you were going to have a member who was now unavailable to the female fans? John would actually tell Hunter Davies in 1967 that he thought it would be the end of the group, that, that everyone said so. So who would come to the rescue? Who possibly could come to the rescue? Brian. Brian Epstein, of course. <laughs> he took care of getting the paperwork sorted, setting up the date and time, etc. He picked up Sin on the day of the wedding, August 23rd. He served as John's best man. He took them to lunch. He gave them a present, which helped to take care of the worries over fans finding out. They would stay at a flat that he owned, rent-free. That way Cynthia, and eventually a baby, could be kept under wraps. It had already been established that girlfriends were discouraged from coming to shows, so he needed to keep that secret. Right, right. They were supposed to be the cuddly Beatles who were, yeah. like, totally available. That is correct. To every screaming little girl. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say, like, you know, hey, we, we do see John still like a little wise guy, like like a teen in a way. But, you know, I mean, he was 21. I mean, that's that's pretty young. Yeah. I mean, in a past episode, we said he was like a child until after the L.A. Mm, right. lost weekend, you know, and then he really grew up, you know, right before his, his what would turn out to be his last album with Yoko. Yeah. Um, but August, the summer of 1962. We certainly see him having to at least pretend not to be a child. Yeah. <laughs> now that they're sort of members of society, kind of, in a way. You know, they're 
recording in London and yeah. and having babies and stuff. Just uh, just sort of came to mind. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> when we're psychoanalyzing like this, like we don't we don't really know. You know, we don't know how mature or immature John was, but. Like people say in other podcasts, we, we do know, these are people who we, we know more about them than almost anybody in the world. Uh, so, mm. Right, exactly. As Cynthia was gestating Julian in her womb, uh, EMI was gestating the Beatles on vinyl. Did you like that, that segue? That's, yeah, that's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were get, going on vinyl, I mean the Beatles proper, without Lou Walters or Tony Sheridan, hmm. uh, preparing for their first major label singles. Kind of a big deal in terms of yeah. studio drumming experience. Was there really any difference? Do you notice when I do this, I'm modeling myself a little bit on on that character that Martin Short does. What is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Was there really any difference? Oh, tell me what. <laughs> um, was there really any difference between Ringo and Pete? Well, uh, neither of them had very much experience to speak of. Uh, they had both done a, a day or two of really primitive studio recording in Hamburg, um, but nothing even remotely on the scale of being in EMI Studios. Um, and it bears repeating that George Martin had no intention of using Pete nor Ringo on the recordings. Mm. Uh, he planned to and did bring in a studio drummer for the September recording dates. Unfortunately, for the sake of history, it's Pete who ends up taking a hit because of the Love Me Do recording that ended up on the anthology. Eric Howell and I talked a bit about this. Let's listen. Love Me Do on the anthology. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of gets right to the point, doesn't it? I get, I, I give Pete a lot, I give Pete a big break for that. He wasn't used to being in the studio and, you know, and he made a mistake. Well, okay. I, I mean, I like Pete a lot, so it's like, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, um, also, unfortunately, I, in the in the confines of our discussion, there's really not time for yeah. me to make it clear, but I'll try right now in a, in a second yeah, yeah, yeah. just by saying, <laughs> I, too, love Pete Best. I am not, by yeah. any means, a Pete Best detractor. It's just when people start bashing Ringo or saying, like, why are they yeah, yeah, yeah. Pete out? It's like, you got to look at some of the some of the data. But Pete Best will always be my hero in that he survived and continues to survive. You're up against it now, buddy, because when he left that band, for whatever reason, you would have no idea in real time that this is something that's going to haunt you for yeah. the rest of your life. I love Pete, too. <laughs> One thing is that Ringo seemed to be more of a buddy you know, with our boys than Pete, who was said to spend a lot of time on his own, mm. not hanging out. So, um, okay, so they were, they were, yeah, people talk about this, that they, they fit, and like Pete was a loner and Ringo certainly wasn't, isn't, right. isn't, you know? Now, what about, though, just purely playing um, from the three front Beatles perspective? What was the actual difference in the, the feel of the two drummers? Well, there seems to be some agreement out there that in terms of the drumming, that Pete was kind of stuck in one style, which was great for the rock and roll they had been doing early on in Hamburg, but that he had not really adjusted to being able to play the styles uh, of something like a, a Besame Mucho or the Girl Group songs the Beatles were now playing, 
Ringo had had far more live experience going back much farther in time than Pete had been playing. Uh, he was able to do those things. Um, here's some more from Eric Howell. You know, it must have been song. such a kick for Paul and John, George as well, but like for them to be playing some song that they've been playing a lot with Pete. And suddenly Ringo's behind the kit and they're turning to each other and like, oh yeah, like this, this is how it goes, man. He, he figured out a way to sort of propel the songs that they were performing, both cover songs and then with their originals, he propelled those songs with his drumming instantly. How does She Loves You start? Yeah. You know, you know like, that's how it starts. It, he rolls you into the chorus of that song and with a love like that, right? Like all of that stuff Ringo was doing, Pete Best wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't creating those kind of things. And he could cut you up with some humor. We'll never know whether Pete could have adapted to studio recording to the extent that Ringo did uh, if given the same chance, but we kind of can guess, can't we? No, no disrespect. Uh. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, like I think I said to you once before, I think it's a bit like what happens with Stu, right? People talk about how he wasn't a good bass player, but you're comparing him to Paul freaking McCartney. Mm. You know, how fair is that, <laughs> right? Mm. You know, Pete gets compared to Ringo, and to this day, drummers will tell you how innovative and influential Ringo was. It's hard to beat that. Yes. There's kind of, there's so many levels of proficiency in your, with your instrument and whatever, you know? Yeah. And that, like, w when we say so-and-so is was better than so-and-so. <laughs> uh, sometimes the, the first so-and-so is just like top of the industry, top of the game, you know? Yeah. Whereas the other one's like like a million very good players, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And what's known about uh, how quickly the others adapted, John, Paul, and George, uh, how did they adapt to being studio musicians? Well, it was a steep learning curve, that's for sure. <laughs> but they were really lucky. They had a great teacher in George Martin. You know, very simple things like him telling John and Paul that Please Please Me needed to be doubled in tempo from its original form in order for it to be a viable single. Um, my personal thought <laughs> would be that Paul was likely the fastest to, to, to really get into the studio, Followed by John. I mean, definitely over the course of their whole thing, that, that happens. Yeah, yeah. Right? We, that's documented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although John, you know, John learns his way. It's just another, it's another case of where, like, if Paul wasn't, like, really great at doing production, you know, which he is, you know? Yeah. And even he's not, like, the best producer in the world, you know? But, like, even still, John is in the top thousand somewhere, right? Yeah, and I'm, and I'm just thinking about this right now, this second, that with George Martin, you had Paul and George Martin being able to, like, they were on top of the music. George Martin knew music. Paul was really interested in getting to know more music. John and George Martin, what they had in common was experimentation, you know? So, mm. it just worked great. <laughs> it worked great, yeah. Yeah. That's not to say, by the way, that John was the only one who was into experimentation. Uh, obviously, Paul was uh, influenced by composers like Stockhausen. George uh, was influenced by Indian music fairly soon afterwards. It's just, yeah, it's like a perfect storm or something like that. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. 
I wonder why George Martin, though, gave in to all their demands. Like, this was unheard of at the time. They wanted, we're going to have our drummer, our songs, no front guy. Everything they wanted, they got, which was crazy at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, and from from what I've been reading, even I ran across this yesterday, right? Um, He kind of gave up fighting with them after they did an obviously dubious job of recording How Do You Do It? Mm. Um, I mean, there was very little pressure on George Martin, really. He didn't have to release anything if he didn't want to. Mm. Remember how we talked before, you must, about how it was the Beatles' charm, not the music that attracted Martin to them. And it happened again. After the September 4th recording session, uh, they went out for a spaghetti dinner. And here's what George Martin would say about that. There was a bit of goons in them. And the fact that I was so associated with the goons put us on good footing from the word go. So we were ready to like and work with each other, even though we were seemingly disparate people. Oh, these are brilliant insights. I love this. Um, yeah. You're very right. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know as well as you do. But it sounds very right to me. Yeah. That he kind of would have given up and like, and he didn't have to. There was no pressure really on him, actually. He probably was under the least stress of all of them, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, For a long time, I've been calling these guys the Evolvers, especially John, but the whole group um, are Evolvers. Uh, I single him out because, like, he really does, by the end of his life, he's just a changed man, isn't he? He's really, really different. but. But in a different sense, all of the Beatles were Evolvers, and and George Martin, too. And they're always readily adaptable to the moment and stubbornly doing their own things at the same time. They're like adaptable and stubborn. Yeah. Uh, Mark Lewison has been using the same neologism Evolver uh, and talking all about the same year, 1962, coincidentally. Yep. Uh, Great minds think alike. That is correct. (laughs) Uh, We'll link to him in the show notes. And by the way, we're we're joking. We don't really think that we're as great as as Mark as a thing or God or whatever. (laughs) That's right. It's just a fact. Okay. Um, We've already noted the serendipity of the Parlophone Beatles match. A really perfect match. Just like, that's it. The perfect storm. Like, how could that even have happened? It's just... Hmm. Just incredible, and that, that's one of the main reasons why um, we're still talking about them today. I think that it really is, more than anything, that matchup of Parlophone and Beatles. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, You know, we've talked about that before, too. Like, the Beatles with Nori Paramore? No. Yeah. You know, Jerry and the Pacemakers with George Martin? No. no. I mean, somewhat, but not, not like the Beatles. Yeah. What was it? Revolution number eight. Revolution number eight by by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yeah. Number eight. Number eight. Don't let the sun catch your eye. So, uh, what were we talking about? Serendipity. We see, um, we see the roots of their collaborative genius even now, right at the very start, in EMI's willingness to allow the Fab Four <laughs> to keep 
marching to the the beat of a different drum to insist on their differentiation from competing artists. They've always done this first, different from other groups in the live scene in Merseyside, always choosing B-sides and the latest go groups. Mm. That meant everything to them. That was their trick. That was their modus operandi. Like, come on, John, let's go find the latest from the Shirelles or from Goffin King. And now we see them differentiating themselves from everything that's in the UK singles chart. Yeah. Baby, you can't get me. Cause if you get too close, you know I'm gone like a fool. Breathe. Now from Abbey Road in London, back up to Heyman's Green, West Derby, Liverpool. Yeah. I had been thinking of Mona as the midwife at the birth of the Beatles, but that is wrong, 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 wrong. Because that's Alan Williams. He really was the one who helped birth them in 1960, right when they got the name The Beatles. Yeah. Um, but at the start of what we covered a year and a half ago, the Beatles just returning from Hamburg for the first time, rising in the scene of dance events at uh, Liverpool dance halls in various suburbs of Liverpool, starting famously the night after Boxing Day at the end of 1960 yeah. at uh, Litherland Town Hall. And Mark says even before that, the night before or whatever, uh, at uh, the Casbah. Right. And then all over Merseyside, all through 1961, Mona and Pete handled the Beatles' bookings. And uh, the, the, like Mark says, uh, our, our Mark Ashworth, not yeah. Lewis, right. uh, says, you know, the, the other three couldn't have done that <laughs> themselves, you know? <laughs> they just weren't those kind of guys who would like, or could be on top of shit like that. Right. They needed someone in between Alan and Epstein. Yeah. Mark Ashworth and Steve Bradley talked with me about Mona, um, as well as Alan Williams. We can hear that. All right. Let's check out Steve and Mark. Something that sticks out is, is, you know, everything that happened for the Beatles in 1960 was because of Alan Williams. Yeah. Then pretty much everything that happened in Liverpool for them up until December 61, when Brian Epstein came on the scene. I think everything that happened in Liverpool during 1961 
was because of Mona Best. Yeah. So was Mona ever even thought of as being a possible real full-time manager as, as opposed to just doing these bookings for them? Or why or why not? I, I think she was doing the best she could to help her son's band, but I don't think she was thinking about it as a career. Do you, Mark? No. I, I think it was all about promoting right. as I say you know the, the, the beat, Pete and the Beatles um, just it was for Pete but, yeah. but, but you know if, if you know it, it depends what a manager is in in, the, in relation to what a manager was in those days if, if it's somebody who manages a band and finds them work you know on, on stage then absolutely that that was what she was doing if you know you're talking about getting them a record deal or something then no but the, the, she did try and get them on radio and television and stuff so she wasn't solely limited to stage work playing dance halls and stuff stage work yeah, yeah but it was Mona that got them on the radio wasn't it BBC radio in Manchester in early yeah. too yeah she was the driving force behind that yeah absolutely and I raised this topic because 60 and a half years ago, the Beatles had new management, which was Brian. And 60 years ago, they overlapped. You know, Mona was still doing some bookings. It was kind of an interregnum, wasn't it? Where there was both Brian and Mona for a half. A bit, yeah. But yeah, Brian was definitely taking over. <laughs> yeah, gradually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for like half a year, it would be like, you know, BBC was her thing, but you know. Yeah. Uh, but she had a new baby uh, and closed down the Casbah yep. 60 years ago. And it was the end of an era 60 years ago this summer in August. The end of an era that, that had to happen. It was a necessary era that year, 1961. Mm -hmm. Without their efforts, it seems reasonable to assume that the Beatles could have said screw it and found day jobs at any point in 61, really. No single step explains their eventual success, but like talk about puzzle pieces. Yeah. Each puzzle piece had to be there, and this and Mona was definitely one. And the world owes Mona and Pete their uh, due appreciation. Absolutely. What can you tell us about the gig booking role of Pete and Mona leading to this point? Well, for more than the last year, yeah, Mona and Pete uh, had been doing the bookings for the Beatles. Mona Best, the first female music promoter possibly in the world, um, had begun Casbah promotions in order to get them more gigs, not just at the Casbah Coffee Club. Uh, Mark Ashworth also talked about how important Mona was in getting the Beatles into the Cavern Club, which, of course, looms quite large in their legend. Oh, yeah. This is it. This is the, this is an interesting thing, and I think this is, the, this is something that's, that's overlooked, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Steve, because what, what is sometimes overlooked is the, is the part that Mo played Getting the Beatles on the cavern. Yeah, she was very good at promoting the Beatles. You know, she thought of it as her son's group, and that's probably how she sort of talked about them when she was approaching promoters. But the owner of the cavern, Ray McFall, says that the first time he'd ever heard of the Beatles was when Mo rang him up mm -hmm. and asked him if he would book them because they were drawing big crowds in at the Casbar and St John's Hall, and they were going down really well. So he said he'd think about it, and then. I think simultaneously, Bob Waller, um, who was the, the cavern DJ, and he'd also been at Littleton Town Hall, started mentioning them as well. You know, he, he'd seen them at Littleton Town Hall and said they were filling venues all over Liverpool, which wasn't strictly true at that point, but where they were playing, they were they, they were selling out. So when she rang him and 
again, he said yes. Some will say it was Bob Wallace, some will say it was Mo Best, but I think the combined efforts of the two of them, he was hearing it from two people, Ray McFall. So he gave them their uh, the debut on the, the 9th of February, 1961, at a lunchtime uh, booking. Um, they went down well. Um, Ray McFall tried to get them again. So once again, it was Peter who had the diary out and handled all the bookings. And he, he, he liaised mainly with Bob Wooler, I think, to... to Get this organized mm, yeah and that's that's a great point a lot of people don't probably know that yeah i was a surprise to me when i first read it <laughs> mm. yeah just to be clear by the way uh pete's departure did not really play a role in the end of the casbah coffee club like you might think happened oh mona's mother uh pete's grandmother who lived with them at eight Heyman's green had passed away in june of 1962 and by the end of july mona had acquired the full-time job of raising a newborn uh one of our favorite people by the way rogue best of course there's another element of stress happening around this time since rogue's father uh was neil aspinall who worked for the beatles yeah, I think um, how how awkward it must have been for Neil to handle the situation he was suddenly thrust into between family and Beatles. Um, I don't know. I don't really. What, do you know what's known about that? I'm not sure that we have an absolute answer to that. There are some conflicting stories out there. Pete remembered at one point that he tried to persuade Neil um, to stay with the Beatles. Uh, but Neil would remember that Pete was somewhat put out by the fact that he wouldn't stay with Pete to drink the afternoon of the deed <laughs> because he still had to drive the van that night. Mm. You know, I'm not sure we know too much about the private life of Neil Aspinall, and that's fair enough. But he did have to deal with raising a son within the best family as well as working for the Beatles, which he did all the way till the end. You've offered an explanation of the development of the whole Beatles phenomenon, <laughs> the whole thing, as the eventual completion of a puzzle, which, you know, sort of rarely happens. Of course, there were other groups, other other hit artists. There would always be somebody at the top of the top 40. But the Beatles, they're kind of um, sui generis, kind of, right? They kind of just seem to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and they're, uh, everything had to be perfect for this to happen, the perfect storm. But not a storm, a puzzle, <laughs> the perfect puzzle. The perfect puzzle. Yeah. With all the right pieces in place. This is your thing. 
What pieces of the puzzle were put in place this summer in 1962? Uh, Well, just to talk about the puzzle itself for a second and underline some of the things we've been saying, you know, they have no idea what the puzzle was going to end up looking like. Mm. You know, for example, Ringo didn't join the Beatles saying, all right, now I get to sing with a little help from my friend. Peace and love. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) And now I get to sing. With a little help from my friends. <laughs> peace and love, peace and love, okay? Okay? I don't really want to stop the show! Their their rise to the level of being a historical phenomenon that people are still writing and talking about 60 years later, somebody's doing that at least, it was nonsensical, except maybe in the mind of Brian Epstein. (laughs) But two huge pieces of the puzzle were happening right now. First and most obviously is Ringo. Was he the luckiest person in the world to get called on by John, Paul, and George? Maybe. But they were just as lucky to get him. Mm. Second, I think, is the drawing of George Martin into the web of charisma that they were spinning. It doesn't seem likely that any other producer, like we were just talking about, Nori Paramore, for example, he would not even have taken our boys. Yeah. Um, Nor would any others have been so open to the experimentation. Even if the EMI chiefs were pushing him. Right, yeah. Or punishing him, as it were. (laughs) Ah, uh, so that's right. So it's like a puzzle where you can't see what the the you can't see the cover of the box, what it's yeah. supposed to look like in the end. Yeah, right. Which is like, so you talk about the puzzle. My thing is, it's like evolution. Right. But the past and history is literally evolution, really. You know. So, um, yeah, and so things have to happen, but they don't know why. <laughs> yeah. You know, they don't know what eventually will come of it. But yeah, that's it. So. The addition of Ringo now and the addition of George Martin, just two huge steps toward what we're going to find out in the future that we don't know yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This summer of 62 was transformative, stressful, but like you say, it set the foundation for their future. I just want to beg everyone not to distort the real situation they were in at the time, because even even us with our talk right now, let's stop saying that they were on the verge of stardom or the cusp of fame. Nobody knew that at the time. And when we, who look back, try to bend the timeline, we're adding to each other's ignorance. They had hopes, certainly, because this is their chance to get on the charts, but they certainly had doubts. It's formidable, you know, to get to number one is a big fucking deal. Yeah, right. And all we can really say, in hindsight, the pieces we're really coming together. <laughs> hey, I think we're running out of time here. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's that time. Larry, it's great talking to you again. Thanks to everyone for listening. Hope you're looking forward to more. Uh, Larry, who else do we need to thank? Let's see. Praise be to Denise A. Lapola and uh, our guest, Steve Bradley, Mark Ashworth, Lorne Grant, and Eric Howell. 
Actually, triple thanks to Eric. Yeah. He kindly produced the episode before this when I was uh, unavailable. I wasn't sick, by the way. Everyone's saying I was sick. I wasn't. <laughs> we tried to say that you weren't sick. We tried to say, no, it's, everything's okay. You're working. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, everyone, I'm okay. And um, Eric um, added the voice of George Martin and Ringo to this episode. Yep. And those are amazing, always. And by the way, just ladling it on here, <laughs> pile it up on the platter. By the way, Eric King Mixer Howell and his wonderful cast have just released episode four of their audio drama, A Day in Their Life. And we got to experience it in advance of its release. Yes. Oh my gosh, it was a trip. It, <laughs> it really is like a must listen. It's a mu- it's must listen radio. I'm not just blowing smoke here. <laughs> it's like King Mixer is the fifth Beatle. Am I overstating it? Uh, <laughs> okay, that, that's fair. Um, <laughs> quite a talented lad he is. Yes, yes, yes. Fifth Beatle. King Mixer, yeah, that works. Fifth Beetle. <laughs> well, maybe Billy Preston, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's links to this uh, and the blogs uh, of all our guests uh, in the show notes, as usual. Be well, Andrew. Laters. Ninety-seven megahertz in stereo, and now a message from our sponsor. This is Brian, or Epi, as the boys are fond of calling me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Beatles Sixty. The Beatles, at their heart, are storytellers. I'd like to invite you to go even deeper into their story by listening to another program called A Day in Their Life, an audio drama of the Beatles' story. Both Andy and Lawrence agree. It's simply marvellous. For details, visit Beatledrama.com or see the show notes for this Beatles 60 episode for the link. Thank you. Thank you. Here's our number again, 0612286262. And it's contest time. 